The hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in times of moral crisis, maintain their neutrality. Dante Alighieri Welcome to Two Guys Searching for Truth on the Road That Never Ends, where all things philosophy are discussed by your co-hosts Credo and Glaucon. And on this road that never ends, we'd like to bring you along to discuss ideas like the Socratic good life, Cartesian doubt, the mystery of the Tao, Buddhist enlightenment, and the very questions which cover what it means to exist as a person. It's the place where thoughts from the past live on eternally in the realm of great ideas and monumental thinkers, and where those ideas cross with the present day to give meaning and purpose to the world around us. Because after all, the unexamined life is not worth living. So tonight we'll continue our discussion of Marcus Aurelius and introduce the work he would become known for, the Meditations. There's poetry to it as well, since he never intended it to be published. It was basically a private journal that he kept to try and better himself and reflect on his life, his position, and his role as the philosopher and as the emperor. So recall that Marcus was attracted to philosophy at a young age, and he only became more attracted as he got older. And when it came time for him to be emperor, he didn't want to. But being the heir, he had only so much of a say. And as being one of two heirs, he just requested that his longtime friend Varus rule alongside him. So it was actually the first of its kind, as I mentioned, this kind of sort of co-emperorship. But Marcus would go on to do the same with his son, Commodus, near the end of his life, and the Roman Empire would see more co-emperorships before it fell. We know that Marcus was a writer. He was educated, and he enjoyed writing. It's a leading reason that we can appreciate and learn from the meditations today. It was written while he was on campaign between 170 and 180 CE. Marcus would vulnerably open himself to every single page, his innermost thoughts, his doubts, his worries, his concerns, and so on, all recorded. As a student, he chose to record them in Greek as a source for his own guidance, self-improvement, and as a testament to his respect and love for the Greek philosophers that came before him and from whom he learned so much. Given that it was a journal and was not meant for an audience, it didn't even have a title. The name The Meditations was just adopted later as a way to reflect how he used the journal and the purpose it served him. He had a logical mind, and his notes represent a clear version of socialism that would become his own. It is still revered as a literary monument to a government of service and duty. People from Frederick the Great, John Stuart Mill, and even Bill Clinton have all looked upon it with favor and admiration. To date, the oldest surviving complete manuscript copy of it is in the Vatican Library and dates back to the 14th century. And so what we wanted to do on this episode is to highlight key passages, some of the things that we felt were important takeaways from the work that will better inform individuals on Stoic thought and Marcus Aurelius himself. I should add one interesting aspect of the meditations is that there doesn't seem to be much of a system of order to it. It's largely thoughts of different orders just jumbled together in 12 books. There also isn't as much of a clear indication when each part was written or the wider context. It just kind of is. The unfiltered and unpolished thoughts of an emperor. A rare insight, really, for the world. And so put yourself in his position for a second. He saw himself as restricted from pursuing his own good because of the empire. This is something that you had talked about last episode. He has hardly any rights, though he has the power to do anything. But he realistically can't do anything. He had to maintain a certain stature and face the Romans. 
He wasn't free to leave Rome permanently, as we talked about, Rome needed an emperor during this difficult time, and he was constantly pressed with work that the wrong move could have cost him his life. Everything he did every day had incredible importance, and he recognized this. His philosophy is a reflection of this reality. So I'll start us off here with an introduction by George Long, which is a translator of the meditations, just to provide some additional context. He says, quote, The perennial charm which surrounds the meditations is explicable on several grounds. Perhaps in the first place we should put the fact that the author was an emperor, that is to say a man who was every day face to face with all the problems of government, who had to lead his soldiers against outlandish tribes. And in his busy career of practical industry, one would have expected him to find opportunity or leisure for the kind of diary in 12 books which he has bequeathed us. Another point of interest is that he has the inestimable advantage of a father by adoption. Antoninus Pius, to whom he gives a remarkable tribute in the opening chapter, was himself surrounded with figures of the ordinary imperial depravity. His wife, Faustina, had no particularly good character. At all events, it is certain that his son Commodus was a brutal leader, and it's difficult for us to understand how so gentle, so cultured, so philosophic a father could have left such few traces of his personality on the upbringing of Commodus. But a third and still important element in our interest in the writings of the emperor is that he was so near to and yet so untouched by Christianity. If we take the series of his thoughts, which he put down apparently day by day as a kind of private commentary to guide his own career, we're struck over and over again at once by their likeness to and their difference from Christian tenets. Yet Marcus Aurelius's reflections are not Christian in spirit, they're Stoic in spirit. Together with the writings of the enfranchised slave Epictetus, they give us the best possible picture of what Stoicism had become in the second century. And so before I get into it, I'd like to circle around and just uh, wrap up this story about Varus just real quick, his co-emperor. So during most of his co-emperorship with Marcus, he was fixated on the Parthian Wars, as I mentioned. These lasted from 161 to 166 CE, and after his succession in the war, he retired to Rome from 166 to 168 CE. He continued living this glamorous lifestyle, he partied with celebrities of the day, he had a tavern built in his house, he would party until dawn, he even liked to sprinkle gold dust on his blonde hair just to make it brighter if that tells you anything more about him. And Marcus just, he just disapproved. You know, you would see this kind of separation between Marcus and Varus throughout the end of his life, and as co-emperor, he just wanted to allow Varus to act with autonomy and efficiency in the sphere of his official tasks, but he also really wanted to kind of guide him as an emperor. Anyway, Varus would fall ill in 169 CE and die a few days later. Most believe it was due to the Antonine Plague or smallpox. When he died, Marcus grieved the loss of his adoptive brother. He accompanied him to Rome and he offered and honored his memory. After the funeral, the Senate declared Varus divine and was worshipped as Divus Varus. Alright, so with that excellent introduction, we'll start into the meditations proper, and I'm going to talk a little bit about book one. So, even though there isn't much of a theme, we can say about book one that it talks about things that shaped Marcus Aurelius into the person that he was. And it does so talking about different figures that affected him and his life. And I'm going to start with uh, the fourth one of these, which is his great-grandfather. And he says, From my great-grandfather, 
not to have frequented public schools and to have had good teachers at home and to know that on such things a man should spend liberally. So here he's saying that you need to be homeschooled and not go to public school, right? So this is something, you know, we've been hearing lately maybe that you should make sure that a young person's education is attended to and you need to make sure that your own education is attended to if you're a young person and I think just generally speaking. And so here he thinks it's very important that you're educated correctly and that no amount of money should be spared to make sure that your education is taken care of. And uh, I think this is this is something that can benefit all of us. Uh, moving on from here, number five, he says, from my governor, to be neither of the green nor of the blue party at the games and the circus, nor partisan either of Harmoliarius or Scutarius at the gladiators' fights. From him, too, I learned endurance of labor and to want little and to work with my own hands and not to meddle with other people's affairs and not to be ready to listen to slander. So here we hear a lot of things, but I think the theme that we can pick up on here is to be bipartisan and not to be a busybody. And so this goes right back to Socrates and Socrates's admonition to us that uh, it's most important to not be a busybody, right? And so here we, we hear that again from Marcus Aurelius. It's important not to be a busybody. And some more sort of platonic type themes. In number eight, he says, From Apollonius I learned freedom of will and undeviating steadfastness of purpose, and to look to nothing else, not even for a moment, except to reason and to be always the same in sharp pains on the occasion of the loss of a child and in long illness, and to see clearly in a living example that the same man can be both most resolute and yielding and not peevish in giving his instruction, and to have had before my eyes a man who clearly considered his experience and his skill in expounding philosophical principles as the smallest of his merits. And from him I learned how to receive from friends what are esteemed favors without being either humbled by them or letting them pass unnoticed. So we, we have a lot of great things here, but maybe most important, I think, is the idea that reason has to come first, rationality has to come first, and not to be touched and affected by the vicissitudes of life, which is obviously a very stoic thing, and that quality allows reason to guide the ship as it were. And then also I thought really great here was this idea that you can receive from friends what are esteemed favors without being either humbled by them or letting them pass unnoticed. So there's this idea of appropriateness of action when dealing with other people. And it is interesting, right? If you're being flattered by someone you want to accept the praise they're giving you, but you don't want to allow that praise to puff you up in a way that is noticeable and then taints or damages the interaction with the other person, right? So those kinds of subtle ways in which you have to pay attention to your interaction with others and maximize 
the benefit of that interaction to both parties. And so you can imagine, right, that a, an emperor is going to want to pay attention to things like that and is going to know that in his interactions with other people, even the slightest way in which he doesn't pay attention can have powerful and profound results and impact the world, really, in a powerful way. So he has to be on his constant guard to really pay careful attention to how he behaves around other people. And uh, that's some, some good advice. Going on from there, uh, number 13, he says, from Catalyst, not to be indifferent when a friend finds fault, even if he should find fault without reason, but to try to restore him to his usual disposition and to be ready to speak well of teachers, as it is reported of Demetheus and Athenodotus, and to love my children truly. So here, this, this one, what jumped out at me was to speak well of teachers. And so here, this is kind of an interesting idea, and it's an idea that we see in Buddhism that you should view your teacher as a perfect person, even though they're not perfect people. And part of the reason for that is that it empowers you. And so I think we see some of that here when he says, be ready to speak well of teachers, because that actually benefits you, because you're going to take with you what they've taught you, and you want that to be something that empowers you moving forward. One way that that is going to be able to empower you moving forward is to view your teachers as good teachers. Part of that is speaking well of them, because if you undermine the people that taught you and you speak badly of the people that taught you, you're basically undermining your own power, right? And going on from here, we have 14, and here we have some really great stuff. Just pulling from the middle of 14, he says, I received, and here he's talking about from his brother Severus, I received the idea of a polity in which there is the same law for all. So the law applies to everyone equally, no one's above the law. A polity administered with regard to equal rights and equal freedom of speech. So here, rights are the same for everyone. So everyone enjoys the benefit of equal rights. And everyone enjoys the benefit of being able to speak freely. And the idea of a kingly government which respects most of all the freedom of the governed. And so a basic freedom of those that are being governed. And so here, we know that these are powerful, powerful, important ideas, ideas that helped our country be the country that it is today. And obviously those may not have been fully realized in the beginning, but the ideas themselves are the kinds of things that allow a people to look to the future with optimism and to live in the present with dignity. And uh, it's just really great and powerful ideas. And then going on from there, we have a couple of really great ones in, in 16. It says, uh, He took a reasonable care of his body's health, not as one who is greatly attached to life, nor out of regard to personal appearance, nor yet in a careless way, but so that, through his own attention, he very seldom stood in need of the physician's art, or of medicine, or external application. So here, he's talking about his father, but 
he's talking about how he took care of his health and how he took care of his body. And he's saying he, he did it in a very powerful way, but he didn't do it in a way that was too attached. He wasn't too attached to his body. And so this reminded me of a, a couple of things. One thing it reminded me of was this way in which in Buddhism they talk about how one of the things you have to watch out for in life is pride of the body. And so there it's kind of like you're super focused on your own physical being and your physical, the prowess of your body, the ability of your body. And so we know it's like a bodybuilding thing, right? Like So sometimes people can be obsessed with their physical bodies and they can take pride in their physical bodies. And this can cause all kinds of problems with you as a person. But you don't want to not take care of your body, right, either. So there's a sort of mean there that you need to be on. And something that Marcus Aurelius took from his father was that his father was on the mean with his physical health. And so that, I thought, was really interesting. And also subtle stuff, you know. This is, these are subtle ideas about how to live well. And then another thing from 16, he says, towards the end there, he says, and that might be applied to him, which is recorded of Socrates. And he was able both to abstain from and to enjoy those things which many are too weak to abstain from and cannot enjoy without excess. But to be strong enough both to bear the one and to be sober in the other is the mark of a man who has a perfect and invincible soul. So here we know that the Stoics cared, just like Plato, about having the right relationship to pleasure and that this was critical for a person to do well in life. And here he saw in his father, he was lucky enough right, to have a father of this stripe that was able to uh, have a good relationship to pleasure, an appropriate relationship to pleasure. And so Marcus Aurelius was able to experience that and it seems to have benefited him in life as well. And that's, that's uh, obviously a blessing. So those, those are some thoughts about book one. And then book, book one, the last thing I'll say about book one is 17, the last section there in book one, is all about gratitude to what he's received in life. And here he's talking about gratitude to the gods because the gods gave him you know, what he has in life. And so I'll just read a little bit of this. It starts off with, he says, To the gods I am indebted for having had good grandfathers, good parents, a good sister, good teachers, good associates, good kinsmen, and friends. Nearly everything good. And then dropping down a little bit further towards the very, at the very end here, he says, and that when I had an inclination to philosophy, I did not fall into the hands of any sophist, and that I did not waste my time on writers of histories or in the resolution of syllogisms, or occupy myself about the investigations of appearances in the heavens. For all these things require the help of the gods and fortune. So here, you know, he starts off and he talks about his family members, his grandfathers, his parents, and then he ends up talking about philosophy and having had the right relationship to philosophy and being given through fortune and maybe the divine the best parts of philosophy and was not distracted by the other parts of philosophy. And this is very, very easy to be distracted by the academic life in a way that causes you to sort of miss the forest for the trees. 
and get into some analytic deep water or be confused by something or attracted to an, a sophistic argument that leads you astray. And so, you know, obviously uh, that may be in the eyes of the beholder, but I think that that's some great and profound stuff there. So those are some thoughts from book one. And uh, it's all great stuff, though. And, and there is at least some kind of a common theme there in book one that it's all about gratitude and about what's shaped him as a person. You know, I mean, book one really does stand out as one of the more organized books. As you said, there's definitely a common thread. And I think that book one is kind of one of those excerpts that almost everyone should read, you know, um, like in its entirety. It's really, really, really telling that his private thoughts, again, this is not for publication, his private thoughts, despite the chaos, he didn't get distracted. And then he's grateful. You know, not just grateful, like super grateful. Like, there's no mention of the negative stuff at all, right? I mean, despite being in kind of a relationship he didn't really choose or like, or, you know, despite not having the best son or, you know, everything else, I mean, he found things to be grateful for amidst all that. I just, and he's emperor. One more thing to say about book one, along those lines, really, to follow up on your comments, is that, you know, it's it is a work, a journal that he referred to for his own edification, right? And so book one is basically a list of things he's grateful for. And it is a powerful thing to remember that we have a lot to be grateful for. And here we have his list of things that he's grateful for. And he's reflecting on this. And that's a powerful exercise and a good thing to do in life. It certainly is. I mean, if you read his reflections, basically, there in chapter one, you almost think, wow, he must have had nothing wrong ever in his life. <laughs> like, this guy got the best of, of, of all worlds. This, you know, he's got the perfect family. He's got the perfect... And then, then you realize the truth, like the historical kind of truth of what was actually going on and the strain and the pressure and the stress and the dissatisfaction with becoming an emperor in the first place and, you know, all this. And then you realize, like, wow... You know, someone who really kind of lives what they're saying. I don't know. I think when I look at knowing the historical context and then knowing how he, in his mind, resolved to portray it to himself. Remember, these are his personal thoughts, right? This, it, he's not doing this for show. He's not doing this for approval. You know, it's, it's just quite interesting that on the innermost part of himself, you know, he's got gratitude, like deep gratitude. Anyway, I, I just think it's, it's quite powerful. I also think that from here in book two, right, he starts going into this idea, and you'll see it kind of spaced throughout the book. I'll quote several excerpts throughout. But, you know, he really starts honing in on this idea that things disappear quickly. Human things, mortal things, material things, they're all soon forgotten. And it's both a way to address the growing threat of fame and of people wanting to be remembered. I think Marcus really saw this firsthand. I think he was really, really troubled by the fact that many become so obsessed with being remembered and how lowly this is. And again, think about it in how it affects you as a person, if that's your goal, right? The things that you do, the motivations and aspirations that you end up developing are not really good. Uh, and so... I think there are a few passages that speak to this at different angles, but they kind of all arrive at the same point. So I'll start here at book two, line 12. He says, 
quote, how quickly all things disappear in the universe, the bodies themselves, but in time, the remembrance of them. What is the nature of all sensible things, and particularly those which attract with the bait of pleasure or terrified by pain, or are noised abroad by vapory fame, how worthless and contemptible and sordid and perishable and dead they are. All this is the part of the intellectual faculty to observe. So I think here we get some insight into Marcus's thoughts on how we're not only part of the universe and like all material things were eventually kind of destroyed and that kind of thing. But he follows up by saying, quote, by in time, the remembrance of them. This part just kind of stuck with me because it shows that he sees the fame and approval of others as being an extension of the material in a way, as something that requires material to exist, something that's dependent upon another. And then he goes on to comment that sensible things, things that are physical in nature, they're all dead in a sense, and we can use our intellect to see that. Like, this is something where we're basically, I mean, he's kind of commenting on the fact that we're above that stuff, and we have the ability to see that. You know, we should see that, and we should acknowledge that. So why are we giving up so much of ourselves to achieve fame among the masses? So we see a similar idea in this next passage by reminding himself how small the earth is and the things in it on the grand scale. He says in book 3, line 10, quote, Throwing away then all things, hold to these only which are few. And besides, bear in mind that every man lives only this present time, which is an indivisible point, and that all the rest of his life is either past or is uncertain. And so here we're told that if you can only keep one piece of information, keep this, that every person only lives in the present. The present time is an indivisible point. And we'll discuss this in future episodes, but the thing he's identified here is pretty significant, that the present is indivisible. It cannot be stopped, divided, split, or somehow captured. He then says that the rest of a person's life is either past, meaning unchangeable, or future, uncertain. He continues, Short is the time which every man lives, and small the nook of earth where he lives, and short too the longest posthumous fame, and even this only continued by a succession of poor human beings, who will soon die, and who know not even themselves, much less him who died long ago. So first we get this reminder of how small human things are, just by definition, on the earth. And then you think about how small the earth is, you know, by definition in the universe and so on, but all the things that are a big deal to us personally are so minuscule on any grand scale you look at it. Our life, our neighborhood, our experience, our fame. He notes that fame requires dependency again, and that at some point, those who hold your fame in their mind and in their admiration will also fade away. People who who know not even themselves, much less him who died long ago, he says. And he continues this, this idea here in book four, line 19, he says, He who has a vehement desire for posthumous fame does not consider that every one of those who remember him will himself also die very soon. Then again, also, they will have succeeded him until the whole remembrance shall have been extinguished as it is transmitted through men who foolishly admire and perish. But suppose that those who will remember are even immortal, and that the remembrance will be immortal. So here's your counter-argument, right? What if people could live forever? What if the idea or the, you know, your remembrance could live forever? He says, what then is it to thee? 
And I say not, what is it to the dead, but what is it to the living? What is praise, except indeed so far as it has a certain utility? For thou now rejectest unseasonably the gift of nature, clinging to something else. And so I think, you know, one part of what he's saying here is that in time, well, number one, praise isn't really something to kind of admire anyway, but in time, people will see that you are kind of selling yourself and it's not really admirable anyway, right? That anyone who is looking upon this with some sort of standing and deeper understanding, they're not really going to look upon this uh, with favor. And then one last part I'll say here, he says, book four, line 33, the words which were formerly familiar are now antiquated. So also the names of those who were famed of old are also now in a manner antiquated. Camillus, Caseo, Volusus, Leonatus, and a little after Scipio, and then Cato, and then Augustus, and then also Hadrianus and Antoninus. For all things soon pass away and become a mere tale, and complete oblivion soon buries them. And I say this of those who have shown in a wondrous way. For the rest, as soon as they have breathed out their breath, they are gone, and no man speaks of them. And to conclude their matter, what is even an eternal remembrance? A mere nothing. What then is that about which we ought to employ our serious pains? This one thing, thoughts just and acts social, and words which never lie, and a disposition which gladly accepts all that happens, as necessary as usual, as flowing from a principle and source of the same kind. So I think this just makes you think of a lot of the untold stories, the heroism, the anger, the happiness, the untold lives of untold people, the unbelievable coincidences that were never recorded, the skills, the talent, everything of so many people. I mean, just think of the billions who have lived. I mean, just, you know, if you think about it, if you go to the local cemetery, the stories that could be told if it could talk, but it doesn't. You know, and those stories are largely confined to just a few individuals, and they don't really pass on in any kind of eternal way. Think of any war disaster, any event that we know. We often just know the event. We don't often know personal accounts of it, despite many accounts of people surviving incredible things. And this, I think, is what Marcus is talking about. Even in the extraordinary, things are lost, let alone in the ordinary. And, you know, one of the I think that Marcus grappled with this idea, you know, he obviously knew that he would be remembered because he also knew all the emperors before him, right? But he also knew that being a philosopher and so many philosophers were remembered. I think this really heavily on him and in, in trying to battle, you know, this inner remembered, but also wanting to be a good person and how sometimes you do things to be remembered that make you less of a good person. Anyway, I think it's just really cool that we kind of see this unadulterated, like, thought process that is going on in his mind about remembrance as a whole. All right, awesome. So I'm going to go to book two again, go back to book two, and there are a couple of great passages here. So I'm just going to read two. Whatever this is that I am, it is a little flesh and breath and the ruling part. Throw away thy books, no longer to distract thyself, it is not allowed. But as if thou wast now dying, despise the flesh, it is blood and bones and network, the contexture of nerves and veins and arteries. See the breath also, what kind of thing is it? Air, and not always the same, but every moment sent out again and sucked in. 
The third, then, is the ruling part. Consider thus, thou art an old man, no longer let this be a slave, no longer be pulled by the strings like a puppet to unsocial movements, no longer by either dissatisfied with thy present lot or shrink from the future. So here we have this idea of our body and our breath and that thinking part of us and how ephemeral it is and kind of just hanging together. And I thought this was a very kind of Buddhist sounding little part of this where we have something like the 32 parts, body parts in Buddhism and also the idea of how ephemeral it is, our life, you know, and the shortness of our life, really. Going on to four, we have, Remember how long thou hast been putting off these things, and how often thou hast received an opportunity from the gods, and yet does not use it. Thou must now at last perceive of what universe thou art a part, and of what administrator of the universe the existence is an efflux, and that a limit of time is fixed for thee, which if thou dost not use for clearing away the clouds from thy mind, it will go and thou wilt go, and it will never return. So we have this short period of time, we have this precious human life, and we need to make best use of our time. We need to use that life. And this reminded me also of a Buddhist point, this idea of a sea turtle. And that is the point that our human lives are so precious because even though we will be reincarnated, according to Buddhist thought, that chance of us being reincarnated as a human being and being in the envious position of being able to use that uh, human life to understand ourselves and make progress towards something worthwhile is very rare. And the rarity of this human life is captured by this idea that it's like a ring floating on the ocean and the chance of a sea turtle popping its head up out of the water and popping its head up in that ring is the likelihood of, of having another chance at being a human being and, and getting a go of it, as it were. And so here we get the same idea that this is a very precious thing and we need to make best use of it and not squander that. And then going to number eight, through not observing what is in the mind of another, a man has seldom been seen to be unhappy. But those who do not observe the movements of their own minds must of necessity be unhappy. So here we're talking about observing the movements of their minds, of their own minds. And so this reminded me of, very obviously, of the nature of meditation and how meditation, the whole idea is to observe the movements of my own mind and to become familiar with those and to understand myself and to understand how I think and how my mind works. And so another really interesting passage here from number two, and then going on to uh, number 10. This was a really powerful one, I thought. Number 10, he says, Theophrastus, in his comparison of bad acts, such a comparison as one would make in accordance with the common notions of mankind, says like a true philosopher, that the offenses which are committed through desire are more blamable than those which are committed through anger. So here we, we get this idea that offenses committed through desire are more blamable than anger. And he says, for he who is excited by anger seems to turn away from reason with a certain pain and unconscious contradiction. 
And this is captured in Plato when he talks about the tripart division of the soul, reason, passion, and desire, and how passion helps reason in the sense that when we become angry, later we recognize that anger and we can become angry about being angry, right, at ourselves. But he who offends through desire, being overpowered by pleasure, seems to be in a manner more intemperate and more, he says, womanish in his offenses, rightly, than in a way worthy of philosophy. He said that the offense which is committed with pleasure is more blamable than that which is committed with pain. And in the whole, the one is more like a person who has been first wronged through pain is compelled to be angry, but the other is moved by his own impulse to do wrong, being carried towards doing something by desire. So if, if I am angered by something external, so somebody does something bad, it makes me angry, and then I act on that anger, I've had an outside effect, an outside cause, which has produced an effect in me that has caused me to do something blamable. But if I act out of desire, it's an inside cause that is producing that change in me, and that's blameworthy. So, so in the case of desire, it's more blameworthy than anger because it, anger is caused by something outside of me. So I thought that was interesting because I had never heard that before, the distinction between vices that are caused by my relationship to pleasure being more blameworthy than my vices that are caused by my relationship to pain. Because we know from our discussion of Aristotle, the relationship of pleasure and pain describes virtue. But here we get this idea that not being temperate is more blameworthy than being cowardly, not being courageous, because the two main, the two main virtues are courage and temperance because they relate to our relationship to pain and pleasure. And here we see that Marcus Aurelius believes that our relationship to pleasure is more important. And if we don't do it right, we're more blameworthy. And I think we were talking about that when we were talking about this a long time ago, that it does seem to be the case that it's much harder for humans to have the right kind of relationship to pleasure it seems easier to deal with pain in life. But so I thought that was pretty interesting. And then I guess we can say a couple more things about two here. We have this idea in 13. We have this idea of our internal demon and then studying about things beneath the earth. And so I can just try to read a little bit of this here and then we can finish with that for what I wanted to say about book two, he says, Nothing is more wretched than a man who traverses everything in a round and pries into things beneath the earth, as the poet said, and seeks by conjecture what is in the minds of the neighbors without perceiving that it is sufficient to attend to the demon within him and to reverence it sincerely. So here, this really reminded me of Socrates because Socrates is all about his conscience, all about the demon within, and is all about not trying to understand things beneath the earth and above the sky, which would be what the scientist does. So paying attention to our moral selves, much more important than trying to understand things which we may not be capable of understanding at the end of the day. So that, those are just some thoughts about book two there. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm always kind of impressed at how Marcus is able to separate certain things that maybe we don't initially believe are as separate as, as he puts them in his kind of way to separate his moral life from his physical life. I thought that was that was really nice. And book four, so just to comment a little on his beliefs on the importance of life and a little bit about being a good character, in book four, he's, line 32, he says, Consider, for example, the times of Vespasian. Thou wilt see all these things, people marrying, bringing up children, sick, dying, warring, feasting, trafficking, cultivating the ground, flattering, obstinately arrogant, suspecting, plotting, wishing for some to die, grumbling about the present, loving, heaping up treasure, desiring consulship, kingly power. Well then, that life of these people no longer exists at all. Again, removed to the times of Trajan. Again, all is the same. Their life, too, is gone. In like manner, view also the other epochs of time and of whole nations, and see how many, after great efforts, soon fell and were resolved into the elements. So we get a certain sort of interesting look at this, too, looking back on a Roman Empire that would eventually dissolve into the elements, as it were. But Marcus is just asking us to reflect upon the times before him, that of Vespasian. And then consider all the marriages, the sickness, the dying, the wars, the riches, the feasts, the feats, the trading, the marketplace, the crops, the arrogance, the suspicion, the grudges, the flattery, the suicides, the love, the treasure, so on. Like, all these emotions, these feelings, these states of minds, these passions, these convictions. And then look at how the life of all of those are gone. The passions, the feelings, they die them. How the grudges are soon gone as well. Though they could have pushed one to their tomb years before they would have actually died without such bothersome conditions. He then, you know, takes you to another time and then says, expand it outwardly. Look at nations, look at time periods, all that, the energy, the effort, the progress, everything is just dissolved. And, you know, like one day our earth will collide with the sun. I mean, the incredible, incredible things that we have, legacies. You know, it also makes me think about how you can be entirely exhausted and frustrated and debating until you yourself insane only to realize you're really the only one that cares about that because once you're gone like things will move on you know just like i said machu picchu is gone you know the mona lisa is like it's all everything's going to be just dissolved right and so in some ways he suggests us to consider what's really occupying our life and to really inquire about this thing's significance to really look deep into it are we okay with this are we wanting that a decisive factor on our sanity and on those we love? And so then a little bit more about good character, he says on book three, line seven, quote, never value anything as profitable to thyself, which shall compel thee to break thy promise, to lose thy self-respect, to hate any man, to suspect, to curse, to act the hypocrite, to desire anything which needs walls and curtains. For he who has preferred to everything else his own intelligence and the demon and the worship of its excellence acts no tragic part, does not groan, will not need either solitude or much company, and what is chief of all, he will live without either pursuing or flying from death. But whether for a longer or a shorter time, he shall have the soul enclosed in the body he cares not at all. And so here we see this kind of push towards ensuring that nobody can break your character and make you do things uncharacteristically. Again, kind of think about the things that he saw. People completely sell themselves for positions of power or for riches or you know what have you never allow anything 
of value over yourself. Don't lose self-respect or break promises or hate another or be a hypocrite and so on. Again, these are things that he would see with his own eyes. People lined up ready to rid themselves of their honor and their, you know, anything, right? Just to get more worldly desire or fame. I think Marcus really saw that as problematic, like, you know, that bothered him internally, right? Obviously, he's recording this in his journal. Because if you can't be yourself and cannot be of good character or your best person, then what are you but a fraud? And then one last part I'll say about this. Book 6, line 30, he says, quote, Take care that thou art not made into a Caesar, that thou art not dyed with his dye. For such things happen. Keep thyself then simple, good, pure, serious, free from affectation, a friend of justice, a worshiper of the gods, kind, affectionate, strenuous in all proper acts. Strive to continue to be such as philosophy wished to make thee. Reverence the gods and help men. Short is life. There's only one fruit of this terrene life, a pious disposition in social acts. And this part, I think, really tells us who Marcus is as a person. You know, being Caesar himself, saying, be careful not to allow this to happen to you, not just being Caesar, it's really what comes with it, the die, right? The kind of prestige and the class, really. He recognized that there is no going back. There's a certain transformation that the throne can have on people and that they become absorbed in their title. They forget their essence. From his point of view, he readily looked at the throne as not being a position of merit, but of circumstance. He was careful that the royalty and the Caesarness didn't rub off on him and didn't corrupt his person. And as he said, revere the gods and help people and strive to be as philosophy wished to make you. Be of good character thoroughly. Life is short and you only live once. You know, he's, he's really known for saying, waste no more time arguing what a good man should be. Be one. And I think that really tells us a lot about who he was. Yeah, no, that's awesome stuff. I just had a couple more little lines to mention. So I've got number 4-4 four, four, towards the end of it. He says, For as my earthly part is a portion given to me from a certain earth, and that which is watery from another element, and that which is hot and fiery from some peculiar source, for nothing comes out of that which is nothing, as nothing also returns to non-existence. So also the intellectual part comes from some source. So this is very interesting because the, he's saying the thinking part of me is also subject to cause and effect. And so this I thought was pretty, pretty cool because in a, a couple of places in Buddhism, once again to go back to Buddhism, uh, one of the ideas about why we should think that we continue on when we die is that everything that exists has a cause, so there's everything's bound by cause and effect. Everything that arises, arises because something caused it to arise. And when I have a thought, there was a, a thought that preceded that thought, and so on. And when I die, my body continues, and so my thoughts must also continue. And so when I have a thought, my very last thought when I die, that next thought has to occur somewhere else. So uh, I thought that was pretty cool. And then we have 436, observe constantly that all things take place by change and accustom thyself to consider that the nature of the universe loves nothing so much as to change the things which are and to make new things like them. For everything that exists is in a manner the seed of that which will be. But thou art thinking only of seeds which are cast into the earth or into a womb. But this is a very vulgar notion. So here, 
This sounds a lot like the idea of dependent origination in Buddhism, right? And so here it's basically the idea of cause and effect once again. And the idea is something like uh, nothing occurs independently or by itself, but all phenomena in the universe are conditioned states which only exist because of other things which brought them into existence. So there's kind of this web of interconnectedness that we're not always aware of. And so it's interesting he was talking about that. And then my last, last line here, there's just so much good stuff in the meditations, but my last line here is 440. He says, constantly regard the universe as one living being, having one substance and one soul, and observe how all things have reference to one perception, the perception of this one living being, and how all things act with one movement, and how all things are the cooperative causes of all things which exist. Observe, too, the continuous spinning of the thread and the contexture of the web. And so there we have, once again, something like dependent origination in Buddhism, but we also have a very Spinozistic-sounding world, universe, where you have some kind of pantheism going on there. <laughs> so anyway, those are just some thoughts about the meditations. So tonight we continued our discussion of Marcus Aurelius and began breaking down and pulling out key parts of his most notable work, The Meditations. This collection of journal entries Marcus left us is still relevant, important, and closely followed by ne uh, nearly 2,000 years later. It shows the most powerful person on the planet at the time going through the same problems you and I deal with today, the same problems we and others will be going through tomorrow. And through reading the meditations, we're left with wanting to be a better person, and we're motivated by his humility, discipline, work ethic, kindness, rationality, and character. He shows his vulnerability to us as he counsels himself through dark times. His dark times. Marcus also reminds himself to detach from his emotions and the difficulties of the world. The material things that distract us and take ourselves hostage. He strives to maintain his composure during tough times and to treat all fates as equal. Prosperity, success, failure, and life. So to open this up with a question, Marcus says in Book 11, Line 39, quote, Socrates used to say, what do you want? Souls of rational men or irrational? Souls of rational men. Of what rational men? Sound or unsound? Sound. When then do you not seek for them? Because we have them. Why then do you fight and quarrel? And so I bring this up because it's great advice, but it also gets me thinking. Do you think that Marcus himself is one version of you know, or maybe an acceptable candidate of what Plato had in mind when he spoke of the philosopher king or the virtuous monarch in the Republic. Right, now, excellent, excellent question. So I would say that kind of like the Chinese stuff where you've got this idea of the virtuous emperor, right? You could think of Marcus Aurelius as a virtuous emperor, but it's different than... It's really different than the idea of ideal or ideal state given the situation, circumstances, however you want to think about it, in the Republic. Because in the Republic, we have a full-blown system in place where we're working from a meritocracy 
the top of which we have a committee of philosopher kings and queens who work together to solve the problems of the state and take turns going back down into the cave to help the people that are bound and are facing the wall, right, so to speak. And I think in the case of a virtuous emperor and in the case of Marcus Aurelius, we have a person that's kind of a cog in a machine, so to speak, but obviously much more powerful than a petty official or a slave or a soldier. Uh, the emperor is the most powerful person in that machine, but is still subject to the workings of the machine and is not really able to fundamentally change the situation in the way in which it would be necessary for that person to change the situation to be the kind of philosopher ruler that was envisioned in the Republic. At the same time, it does kind of fit the model of the virtuous ruler because you have basically a very limited amount of options. You have a virtuous ruler, you have a tyrant, and you have a democracy. And in the case of the virtuous ruler, the problem is perpetuating it. In, in the case of a democracy, you kind of give up, you, you kind of solve the perpetuation problem, but you lose the virtuous part and you lose the wise part. Right? So you have, but you have the ability to perpetuate it, but you don't have perpetuation of virtue and wisdom. In the tyranny, you have centralized power but you don't have virtue and wisdom. In, in the virtuous ruler, you have the virtuous ruler, but it's only for a time. And then when that time passes, it no longer exists. And like you were saying when you were talking about the Roman historical story and this idea that Machiavelli thought that this period of time was a time of relative peace and kind of a good time, this is the problem, right? The problem is that you don't have a perpetuation of virtue, right? Which is what we were talking about with his son and so forth, right? And, you know, also with Nero, right? We have this horrible situation where the virtuous ruler is replaced by someone that's just not at all what we want to have ruling us. So for those reasons, I would say it isn't, it isn't really a realization of something like Plato's idea. On the other hand, it is really fitting that branch, that division of potential types of government of virtuous rule, but it's hindered and not realized for the very reasons that, for the very same things that Marcus Aurelius was struggling with because he wasn't able to uh, really actuate the kind of change that he could have, you know, ideally brought about. And that's, you know, part of the problem, right, is that we, we have to try to find a system of government that allows every person to be as good as they can be and you know we we see we saw some of that right in the meditations with this idea of equality of of rights and equality of freedom freedom of speech and those kinds of things being ideals but yeah i, I think that yeah in some ways it is in some ways it isn't you know it's quite interesting because when you realize that despite all of marcus 
like tireless work. And remember, this is not Seneca. This is not an advisor. This isn't Plato, just a philosopher. This is the emperor himself. And so he knows he's handing the throne over and he knows what it takes to be a good emperor. Uh, he knows what it takes to be a philosopher. He knows what it takes to raise a child. And obviously he had a lot of gratitude in his life and, and he knew that, you know, he could turn out a good child. You really get another kind of up close and personal slap with reality of trying to perpetuate I mean, there's there's nobody who would ever question Marcus's like incredible effort trying to make sure that the the empire is kind of kept in good hands. And even despite that, I mean, we're talking about someone who co-ruled with Marcus. This is not just like a son that was 12 years old and took over like some of the, you know, some of the kings. This is I mean, he was grown, you know? And he already had a bit of like a taste of the empire itself. And, you know, I'm sure that he had the writings of Marcus that we're talking about today in this podcast. And even still, he was kind of overcome. And we're talking about one generation. And just to close out this episode, George Long, the translator that I quoted at the beginning, he had this to say about Stoicism and the Romans. He says, quote, Stoicism was a creed which especially recommended itself to the Romans from the very earliest time of its introduction, because in many ways it corresponded with the stout and intolerant Roman spirit, with its natural love of independence, valiant endurance of suffering. Stoicism was not Greek in spirit, but rather the antithesis of the Greek idea. To the best Hellenic writers' ethics, that is to say, the private moral an individual were inexplicably bound up with politics, the laws and conditions by which states preserve their integrity. When the Hellenic system was broken up, two forms of philosophy emerged, both in a manner dependent on the new fact that man was bound to regard himself not as a citizen of a given state, but as a citizen of the world. One was the Epicurean philosophy, and the other was Stoicism. And Stoicism laid stress on the manly virtues of independence and the strength of will. And the breakdown of the old constitutional forms and the misery and unsettlement of the times, the Stoic philosophers invited men to fall back on their own natural powers and capabilities to face the problem of life by a resolute assertion that within the four corners of his own consciousness, man was free and the proper master of his fate. Roman Stoicism, of course, took various forms. In the writings of the emperor, these tenets are represented in the gentlest and most appealing way, albeit that they are not divorced from the fundamental principle that a man must find within himself the sources of his own strength. And so we come to what apparently has been looked upon as a paradox, the picture of an emperor with all the weight of a great kingdom in his hands, recommending himself in aphorism after aphorism to retire within the citadel of his own soul and find peace and comfort in the knowledge that reason governed the universe. So this should serve us well and lead us directly into our next discussions as we re-enter the Renaissance and move towards the thought-provoking ideals of modern philosophy and David Hume. And we want to thank you all for listening, and we hope this discussion inspired your own search for truth. And as always, we'll see you next time as we search for truth on the road that never ends.